and then we will jump over to chapter 9 and then to chapter 10 or chapter 11 rather as we begin today this morning we are talking about the two natures of christ i told you we were going to come back to this series and we are here now today to unpack this Uh, We will be reading from these four chapters, but I want to begin this morning by defining what we're talking about. What we're talking about. And to do that, I want to cite the very lengthy and uh, involved uh, Chalcedonian or Chalcedonian definition. This definition was created in 481 AD in response to the ongoing attempts of heresy that uh, that were coming against the church. And so please listen, I don't have a slide for it, but please listen attentively to this this morning. It says, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. We are today talking about the two natures of Christ. Jesus is God and man. Not part of one or the other, but fully God and fully man. One person with two natures. Not two persons, one person with two natures. Now this morning, I want to take a few more moments to unpack why this is important. Many people in here today would say, Pastor, I believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Why do I need to know this? Well, I hope to be able to illustrate that not only today, but over the next several weeks as we go through this. But I want to share with you a moment something from the Reformation. It's a little bit of a history lesson. The Reformation was a movement to reform certain errant teachings within the Catholic Church, led predominantly, or most notably, by Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in a devout Catholic German family. In 1505, he joined the Augustinian monastery, became a monk. In 1517, he became convinced, 12 years later, that the Catholic Church had erred and had drifted from the truth of scripture and he began to speak out now he was not the first one to do so a couple hundred years before that there were other men john huss john Wycliffe, were burned at the stake for suggesting the catholic church was off 
Now, this is very important because Luther was taking his life in his hands by standing up and saying the Catholic Church had drifted from its orthodoxy. And by the way, orthodoxy simply means right belief. You hear that big religious word and sometimes you get a little nervous. But orthodoxy simply means right belief. An orthodontist straightens your teeth or makes them right. And orthodoxy is a system of belief which is consistent with what the Bible has taught through the centuries. And so the Catholic Church had drifted from these right beliefs. And Martin Luther posted what are known as the 95 Theses on the castle door of the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, highlighting all the reasons the Catholic Church was wrong. And as a consequence, he became a target of the Catholic Church. Pope Leo X called him a child of the devil and a wild boar in the vineyard of the Lord. And he was given a chance to recant his beliefs, and he would not. And as a consequence, he was an outcast and an outlaw for the rest of his adult life and lived many years in Wittenberg Castle under protection of William... William Frederick the Great, I'll get my greats right in a moment, Frederick the Great for many years uh, because of his opposition to the Catholic Church, and this gave birth to what we call the Reformation. Now, I gave you that because I want you to see something here uh, from Luther about this, and I believe it's very relevant today in our culture. Here's what Luther said. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefront is merely flight and disgrace if the soldier flinches at this point. In other words, if you vision, envision a battlefront, the, the soldier is called to fight where the attack is coming. Not, not over there somewhere. Not, not down there. There's nothing happening over there. The battle is here, and this is where he must fight. And, and, and the, the point we can draw from this is this, children. If, in other words, if we do not witness of Christ as he is presented in the Scripture... We do not witness. We might have all kinds of other religious conversations and activities, but if we waver on the biblical definition of who Jesus is, we are not witnessing. We're engaging in religious activities, certainly, but we are not witnessing. If we are not willing to vigorously defend the most central premises of the Christian faith, None of the other Christian things we do will have any lasting or eternal effect. We can support the homeless, and we can support the pregnancy center, and we can support missions and humanitarian efforts throughout the world, but if Christ is not being proclaimed as the Scripture portrays Him, we cannot be said to be bearing faithful witness about Him. And this, my children, friends, the two natures of Christ, though all of us probably would say, I believe in that, they're seldom emphasized as one of the central truths that we Christians must acknowledge and defend. I don't know if you heard 
the other part of that story I shared with you today, but one man wrote a piece, and I believe it was in the New York Times, suggesting that going with the flow of the culture and the proper use of pronouns, that we should call God they instead of he or him. And Matt Walsh, if any of you know who he is, he pointed out that isn't it odd that the culture demands that we recognize this person's pronoun but think ourselves free from recognizing and abiding by the pronoun that God has given himself. Children, we are locked in a battle where the world is trying to rewrite who Christ is. And this is why it is so very important for us to know these things. We must acknowledge and defend. Now get this. Because man is inherently and intrinsically a religious person. Isn't it amazing? People say, I don't, I don't believe in religion. Then why do you keep trying to rewrite God? Why don't you just sweep Him into the dustbin of history and go your way? Because we're at the core, we are basically religious people looking for something outside ourselves to worship. And I want to submit to you today, the greatest challenge Christians face is the current cultural pressure to alter what the Bible says about Christ. Now let me give you this. It is true and uh, that you and I cannot fully comprehend or perceive the mystical unity of God and man. None of us are going to dispute that. We cannot consciously perceive how that works. No more than we can conceive how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. But friends, we must know that this is the case. Listen to what Stephen Wellham says in his book, God the Son Incarnate. He says, we have explored a lot of information in many different ways and categories to answer the question that Jesus himself asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And the parts of this volume attempt to answer Jesus' question with confidence and authority in our own day. For the church to know the truth, faithfully confess, and effectively bear witness to the identity of Christ amid the contemporary culture, we must identify Jesus Christ correctly and declare him within the church and to the world. Now, I know you all may think, and it would not be a, a, uh, it would not be a unfair criticism. The pastor, you, you, you just drive this home about Jesus Christ and I'm telling you today that there are tens of thousands of people sitting in churches like this this morning who do not believe in the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is never talked about in their churches. Myriads are running around saying, I'm a Christian. And they have no clue the Christ they believe in. This is the battle, this is the culture, and we must be true to the Word of God. Now this is the testimony of the church fathers. Athanasius said that salvation, the, for, for salvation the correct faith is necessary, not only regarding the divine nature in Christ, but also regarding the human. Hilary of Potier said it is a matter of equal danger to deny either the deity or the flesh of Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man. Now, in fairness, 
I must tell you that this is not a requirement for a newborn Christian to know the complexity of these things. We do not expect a newborn Christian to, to, to comprehend this stuff. But hear it, please. It is not a requirement for the newborn Christian to know or be able to convey this kind of depth. It is true. It is true that if the church loses or fails to defend this knowledge, we have no hope of seeing true conversion in the church. People will put their name on the church roll book. They might come to the services if we spice them up enough. A true conversion, a sinner being born again, a, a, a broken person being transformed into a whole person will not happen without the truth of the gospel, which is that God became man and took our place under the wrath of God that we might be saved. This is where Christianity differs, children. We must hear this and cling to it. This is where Christianity differs from Mormonism. Mormonism believes in Jesus, but it is a Jesus who is a separate God from the Father. Not Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in one God, but a separate, distinct God altogether. And by the way, not unique, not only begotten, but one of many of God's celestial children, including the devil, who had a different mother, but the same father. In Mormonism, Jesus Christ and Satan are brothers. That's not Christianity. Stop telling me. Let's all join together. Um have a moment of, of centering and, and you know, bring down the blood pressure here this morning. Children, please stop telling your Mormon friends they're saved. They are not saved no matter how often they go to the temple because they do not believe in the Christ of the Bible. They might not even know they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible, but they don't. Let's think about Islam. Islam believes in Jesus. They call him Isa. They think he was a great prophet, but they do not believe he was God, that he died on the cross, or that he was resurrected on Easter morning. You hear people say, well, we believe in the same God. We believe in the same historical figure from whom these faiths descended, but the God we believe in is completely different from the Islamic God. And of course, we could talk about our Jehovah Witness friends who believe Jesus was a creation of the Father, that He was the first thing God created, and then using Jesus as a funnel, as a channel for His creative power, He created everything else. I didn't know this, but in my Jehovah Witness Bible downstairs in, in Colossians chapter 1, where it says He created all things, and it says in the, in the Jehovah Witness Bible, there's a little, the brackets, and it says all other things, because they believe He was a creation of God. And why do they believe that? They do not believe in a Jesus who is 100% man and 100% God. He's just a step above humans and a step below God. And children, what we believe is completely, totally different. And are we convinced of that? Because if we're not, we're not going to have effectiveness in our culture. We must have an unwavering message. 
I mean, let's, let's, let's play a little, you know, let's dabble for a moment in the frustrations of political time. How many of us today, honestly, how many people, how many people are confused out of their mind about the COVID issue? Because every time you turn around, there's a different message. There's a different message. There's a different message. There's a different message. I got an email this week from Liberty Council that said that there is no FDA approval for the vaccine. That they put that letter out there to get the, the mandates going, but then the next day they sent a letter to Pfizer saying the vaccine is still under an emergency use authorization. Now we're all confused about that, aren't we? And we don't know what to believe. And people don't know how to act, and they're taking extra precautions to make sure they don't contaminate anybody because they're confused. Now, I ask you today, how likely is it that a broken sinner is going to believe the message the Christian church has to share if it's constantly waffling and changing? We must be certain we believe these things if we hope to be effective in our time and in our world. Now, I've chosen to begin with these Isaiah passages we're going to read in a moment because a lot of people mistakenly think that the record of Jesus' birth in the Gospels is when it began for him. We say it, but I don't know that we really believe the understanding that what happened in Bethlehem and before, obviously, in the womb of Mary, is that God joined himself to a human being. Now, I know that in our culture that sounds scientific-ish, scientific uh, science fiction-ish, whatever the word is, you know. But where did they get the idea? From the Holy Word of God. That's where they got the idea. I don't have time to get off track here this morning. This, this Jesus, there are substantial. If we look at the Old Testament... We see substantial Old Testament references to the person who was and is God and will remain so in becoming man. The New Testament proclamation of Jesus' virgin birth rises from the Old Testament foundations of a coming representative who would be much more than a man. This is another reason, children, I beg you, do not forsake or abandon the Old Testament. I know it's hard at times, and I know it's difficult to connect all the dots, but woven into that passage and woven into that testament are the foreshadows of our Savior and Messiah. Our text contains a number of those passages, chapter 7 through 11. We're going to read it here in just a moment. And though filled with events and prophecies concerning the prophet, there is a thread woven throughout these chapters, especially of this coming person who is God coming in the flesh. And if you have your Bible open, we'll read just one verse from chapter 7. It's a verse that most of us are aware of. Verse 14. And I'm reading again from the English Standard Version. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, Matthew picks this verse up in the New Testament. And he tells us not only that, this was, that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy, he defines Emmanuel and he says, God is with us. 
Now, I'm going to read from chapter 8, but I've paraphrased it on my outline, so you don't have to follow along. It would be difficult for you to do so. But verse 7 and 8 of chapter 8. Now, maybe I didn't paraphrase it. You'll find out. I'll just go ahead and read it from the book. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, if I'm not mistaken, these are the only two references in Isaiah, certainly, and perhaps in the Old Testament, where it says, Emmanuel. In other words, the land here that the, the, this enemy is going to fill the land of, God. It is God's land, and it is the land of that child that was there in chapter number 7. Now let us go to chapter number 9, verse 1 through 7, and you will recognize these passages, I'm sure, but notice, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Again, you can go to Matthew, and you can read about how Jesus starts his ministry, and Matthew says this is the fulfillment of that passage. The land that has been in darkness is seeing a great light, and that light is Christ. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian." Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now here's the verse that we're all familiar with. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now notice, please, that you should, you should be able to see the connection. In chapter 7, a virgin shall bear a child, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a baby. And in chapter 9, it's the same baby, and yet it is not mere man baby. It is a baby who deserves the title God, the great God, the mighty Father, the eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. And listen, listen on of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a baby coming to planet earth. But he's not just a baby, he's God. Now look at chapter 11. And remember this, this flow now, this flow of thought, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and now we come to chapter 11. Now let me give you just a little bit more of history. The, 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 uh, the kingdoms of Israel is divided, and most of the kings are corrupt. And this is important because you, you look at chapter 11, and he, he uses a metaphor. Verse 1, 
there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In other words, from a human point of view, it looks like there's no hope for the nation of Israel. They've been decimated and undermined and corrupted. But the prophet says, there shall come from that stump a root, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now listen, when you get over to the book of Revelations, it talks about the seven spirits of God. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas about what these seven spirits are. Well, remember that John's quoting from the Old Testament. He's using Old Testament imagery. So count with me this morning. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And seven represents fullness. It represents completeness. Christ, and John says this in his gospel, Jesus had the Spirit without measure because he's God. A mere human could never hold the fullness of the Spirit. Only God could do that. Listen now. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and declare with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then if we read on, at that time, when this God person has executed judgment, The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion will be fattened together. Do you see it, children? We're talking about God here, not just a good man, not just a good prophet, not just a really wise person that you ought to pay attention to. No, we're we're talking about something much more than that. It's God. And oh, children, I must beg you to hear this today. I must beg you to hear this today. This is why it is absolutely perilous to ignore this person. You can ignore me or a hundred other million preachers in the history of the Christian church, but you cannot ignore Christ, for he is not just a good man. He is God. And when we reject him, we say to the God who created the universe, I have no need for you. Let me give you a couple thoughts here the human person and this one's structured because we need definition in our world today the human person named jesus at birth existed as god in full divinity outside his creation before shrouding himself in human flesh jesus's existence did not begin when he was born for he had always been with the Father in eternity past. Now in his book, Legacy, John Hanna tells the story of a Christmas card, his favorite Christmas card. And on the front of this Christmas card, and get the image please, across the top of the card it says, Merry Christmas. And under that heading is a picture of Hitler, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Stalin, and some other bad guy that I can't recall at this moment. And across the bottom of the card, it says, many men have sought to be God. 
And when you open the card, there is a picture of the manger and the babe lying within. And the caption says, only one God sought to be man. Children, this is the difference between what we believe and what the world believes. Amen? This is the difference. They believe in men who by strength or wisdom achieve some greatness. We believe in a God who was so great, he had no fear of taking upon himself the form of an infant helpless child. He existed before he came. His, he did not begin in the cradle or in the, in the manger or in the womb of Mary. He was God from all eternity. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we jump down to verse 14. Do you know it? And the Word became flesh. It doesn't say the God, God somehow blessed the flesh with the specialness of His presence. It says He took on that flesh. In fact, the Word became flesh. If you'll remember this from our series in John the other year, the Word dwelt among us is the same word used for the Old Testament tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. Not with us in spirit, not with us on a, in a sense of go, I'm, I'm with you all the way, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying about you. But with us physically. That's the connotation here. Now children, listen. God entered His creation. That is, He became subject to it. God help us your children, your people, to conceive in our hearts as best we can the majesty of what you've done on our behalf. God entered His creation. Separate from it, still. But He entered His creation. That is, He became subject to the creation. He was completely God, but completely man. And when He takes upon His manhood. He's subject to the world he created. And that is by joining a human body and nature to his divine self. Listen, you should know this. Jesus Christ was capable of and did in fact die. For people who think it wasn't really Jesus, it wasn't, really a, it wasn't really God. This is one of the reasons why this is so important. And if I can stay with my outline. Mohammed, they, they teach that Jesus was not crucified. The people were confused and they crucified somebody else in his place. They never talk about the injustice of somebody else dying for this person's crime. But they don't believe Jesus was crucified. It was somebody else they crucified. And that takes away the whole concept of Christ suffering on my behalf. Because in Islam, he did not suffer. Jesus could and did die. He could and did suffer trial and temptation. I believe it's in John 13, he says to the disciples, you are the ones who've contended with me in my trials. 
All of the three synoptic gospels begin with what? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He suffered hunger. He suffered thirst. He suffered fatigue. He's in the back of the boat asleep. He suffered anguish. He experienced isolation. How many of you, how many of you feel like sometimes you're kind of out of step with what's happening in the world around you? Anybody here today? And I'm always considered myself an outsider. But a better word might be an outcast. But you just feel like sometimes, you know, depending on where you're at and who you're with, you just feel like, I'm uncomfortable here. It's like a pastor going to a, a funeral and you're surrounded by a bunch of people who don't believe. And what are you supposed to say to those people? I went to a funeral one time and I'm just pacing around because I knew one or two of the people very graciously they asked me to do it. And, and I was wandering around. I didn't know two-thirds, 90% of the people there. I didn't know. They didn't know who I was. And then, you know, if they did know you, some people, once they figure out you're a pastor, what nothing to do with you. So they always kind of go the other path. And there was another boy there that was somehow connected to the family. He kept wandering around like I did. And finally, I just told him, I feel like I don't belong here. And he said, me too. <laughs> now it's time for the pastor to give a commercial about visiting, welcoming visitors. And we have visitors this morning. Jason is here. And it's good to have uh, Steve's sister with us, whose name I did not catch. But you are welcome to be here. And we're glad you are. Uh, we always want to be friendly to our visitors so they don't feel out of place. Amen? Boy, that worked right in there, didn't it? Did you see how I did that? Hey, man, that's cool, isn't it? Listen to me, children. We, we, listen to me, children. Christ experienced isolation, disappointment, and sorrow. We're going to read a passage in just a bit. You'll see the disappointment. But let me remind you about the sorrow. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus and does what? He weeps. He rides into the city to the triumphal entry. And he gets up on a rise and he sees the city. And the scripture says he wept. He knows sorrow. This, this isn't God out there somewhere disconnected from us. He suffered. He did all of these things. He experienced everything men do. And yet... He never ceased to be God. Now, this is where I really want to unpack it. Stephen Wellam again. Get it, please. When the Son assumed a human nature, this not only allowed Him to live and experience human life, it also meant that He continued to share with the Father and Spirit the divine nature and a divine life. When the Son became incarnate, this did not result in a change in the divine nature. The Son did not cease to be what He'd always been, even in the exercise of His divine attributes. Hence the scriptural teaching that the incarnate Son, in relation to the Father and Spirit, continued to sustain the universe. Now, if you're concerned that that sounds, you know, that sounds like maybe that's something somebody thought up recently. Well, let me quote to you from St. Augustine in the 5th century. Christian doctrine does not hold that God took on the flesh in which He was born of the virgin in such wise as to abandon or lose His care of the government of the world or to transfer this care, reduced or concentrated, so to speak, in that small body. 
Cyril of Alexandria said, when seen as a baby and wrapped in swaddling clothes, 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 swaddling clothes, swaddling cloths, even when still in the bosom of the virgin who bore him, he filled all creation as God and was enthroned with him who begot him. For the divine cannot be numbered or measured and does not admit of circumscription. Athanasius said, he was not, as might be imagined, circumcised in the circumscribed, excuse me, circumscribed, reduced, or, or inhibited in any way in the body. Nor while present in the body was he absent elsewhere. Nor while he moved the body was the universe left void of his working in providence. Oh, and listen, children, but thing most marvelous. Word as he was, so far from being contained by anything, he rather contained all things himself. And just as while present in the whole of creation, he is at once distinct in being from the universe and present in all things by his own power, giving order to all things and over all and in all, revealing his own providence and giving life to each thing in all things. And he did this while he was an infant in the manger. How in the world, pastor, you're off your rocker. You're out of your mind. This is a baby. Can't move. Can't do anything. He depends on his mom for everything. In the humanity, he depends on God for everything. But in his unreduced divinity, he is still God. And oh, children, this is why it was not idolatry for the shepherds or the wise man to bow down and offer gifts to this king because he wasn't just a baby. He was God who deserves our worship and adoration. This is the God we serve, children. This is the God we serve. Listen to it. Now, this is important. Colossians 1.19, For in Him all the fullness of, of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Get it? Because now Jesus is in heaven. He was in heaven when Paul wrote this. What does that mean? That Jesus still has a glorified human body in heaven. Not, not, not just here was he bodily. He still is. And what does the scripture say for those of us who are not troubled by death? For many of us here have suffered that this past couple weeks. We had three, three fathers, three fathers in our church that left this plane in the past week and a half, two weeks. We don't diminish that at all. But for the Christian, we have hope in Christ because as he was resurrected, so his people will be resurrected with him. Dear God, listen, and I'm almost done. John chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. This cannot mean, children, they didn't like what he said, which is probably true. But in the Old Testament, the claim to be God was a stoning offense. It was blasphemy. Somebody who did that was to be stoned. A prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord falsely was to be stoned. And these Jews took up stones because what he had said when he said, I and the Father are one. 
Please get that. Because it goes right back to what we just said a moment ago about this is not just a baby. This person is not just a man. He is fully God because he says, the Father and I are one. Despite my clothing myself in human flesh, we are still one. I am one with God the Father. It is God and man. John 14, 6-10. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Wait, hold everything. Hold the phone. How could I possibly have seen God by looking at you? Because I am God in human flesh. Now listen, he goes on, Philip, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, here's the disappointment. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? And this is the last night of his life, and he's still disappointed with the disciples. He knows what we face, children. And then he says, then he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not that God the Father inhabits a physical body as Christ does, but that they are one in their values, in their holiness, in their eternity. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own. Can I flip back to Isaiah for a moment quickly? I probably can flip back there quickly, but whether here we go. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What did Jesus always say? He always said, words I'm speaking are coming from the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does His work. God and man. Not half and half, not one or the other, both. This is the God we believe in. This is the Savior we worship. Now you say, Pastor, hold on just a minute. Hold on, hold everything. If that's true, if Jesus, if, if Jesus is God in the flesh and God did not decline or did not become weaker or was not less than God when He joined Himself to this human nature, then what does Paul mean in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. What does that mean? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If Jesus was fully God and fully man, what does Paul mean when he says he emptied himself? And that's where we will begin next week. Let's pray. God, our Father and King, we honor and exalt you to